Amen. Amen. Will you say his name with me out loud one more time? Jesus. Let's say it another time. The name Jesus. Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior. You are, you are our rescuer. You are our hope. And Lord, we need your presence in this room. Amen. We need your presence. Not just the memories of what you've said, not just the examples of what you did, but we need your presence in this room. You said that where two or three were gathered together in your name, and thank the Lord, there are more than two or three of us here this morning. Grateful for that breakthrough that you said where two or three have gathered in my name there, I will be in the middle of you. We need your presence, Lord, and we need your example. We need your example stood up before us in our hearts and in our minds. In this, in this day, in this season of, of great turmoil in our nation, the church needs to be reminded of the example of Jesus in this season. And we need to be empowered by his presence in us. The scripture says that the sons of Issachar, one of the tribes of Israel, understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. We need some double first cousins of the sons of Isaacar today. Understanding the times, the real understanding of the times. And then knew what the people of God should do. There was another verse that is rich in my heart often as I look forward to these times together with you. Where the Lord says, there will come a time when I will raise up shepherds who will have a heart after me and who will teach you in knowledge and understanding. I want to be that kind of shepherd whose heart belongs to the Lord, but then who has a sense of what is the pertinent, what is the relevant, what is the real time, knowledge and understanding that the Lord's people need to be fed from. As we come into this Sunday, there is a stirring in my heart and a burden in my heart for our nation, for the trouble, the unrest, the disturbances across the cities and the communities of our nation. I believe there is at least one word from the Lord for the church, for the Alamo City family, and that's the beloved group that I, I speak to this morning. I, I know we're scattered all over the place. Uh, not everybody's uh, in San Antonio, um, but we're somehow connected in the spirit as this Alamo City streaming family. And here's what else I'm certain of. 
that we're not made up of all one color. This is not a white man's church. Never has been, never will be, by the grace of God. When Alamo City was formed 32 years ago or so, the prayer in our hearts, Shirley and I, longed for this to be a gift from the Lord, that he would let us be a part of a church that looked like San Antonio, that looked like San Antonio. I'm, all of you who are listening this morning may, may not know a lot about San Antonio, may never have, have been here or lived for very long, but here, here's the truth. Everybody in San Antonio, in one way or another, is a minority. Anglos are a minority. African-Americans, Asians are a minority. Hispanics are in the majority in the city and in the area, but are a minority nationally. So you know what that means? We all better get along. And we all have learned how to enjoy eating each other's food. Do I have a witness on that? You know, coming from, coming from the deep south where it was biscuits and sausage and eggs and bacon and girl, I, if you had told me that about four breakfasts out of a week, I'd be having chilaquilas or I'd be having breakfast tacos, I'd have told you, you don't know who you're talking to because I'm a biscuit brother. I'm a, I'm a sausage man, but oh my goodness. What a, what a joy in many ways it has been that, that we are a blended city culturally. And thank God we're a blended church culturally. It's, it's always been that way, and, and we want it always to be. We would tell our children, we raised three of them here, Abby, our oldest, then Katie and Evan. We wanted them to grow up really, really, really believing that when they walked into Alamo City on Sunday, they would be thinking this is what heaven is going to look like because it is what heaven is going to look like. There is no segregation in glory. There is no separation of the, of the peoples of Jesus. We, we wanted them to grow up, and they have grown up with friends who were not known, oh, this is my black friend, or this is my... Hispanic friend, or this is my Asian friend. They just grew up saying, this is my friend. And somebody might notice, but we wanted them to grow up colorblind, 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 to know the heart first, the soul first, the, the brain first, the, the person first. And I'm, I'm so thankful that Alamo City over the years has been a place where that could happen. Now, not everybody wants that. Not everybody who thinks they're prejudice-free is prejudice-free. And here's one place you can find out. It's down in Dolores' area in the nursery in the preschool. One of the greatest indicators of whether there is a freedom across the races is if there's a freedom for the children to be children and gnaw on the same things and crawl across the same things and ride on the same things. It's amazing how if you have a problem ethnically, 
you're going to have a problem with whether or not your baby is chewing on the same toy that somebody's baby of another background has. Now, we try, don't I know, we try to wipe those things off and we try to keep that from happening a lot, but kids are going to be kids. And there'd be some folks who have walked in here over the years and just said, this, this place isn't brown enough for me, or this place isn't African-American enough, or this place isn't, isn't Anglo enough, or sometimes this place isn't charismatic enough, or this place is too charismatic for me. We, we just have had all kinds of grids that have been thrown against us over the years, but the joy is knowing we're not trying to measure up to anybody else's outside standards. It's just, Lord, you build this church. You let this be a place where you'd want to come on Sunday. If you showed up physically in one body on a Sunday morning, you would want to be in that place, in that house called Alamo City. It's not perfect. Everybody's not always sweet. <laughs> Everybody's not always doing it right all of the time, making all the choices. But that's the good thing about it. We know we're sinners being saved by grace. Amen? So thank God I'm not what I used to be, that old saying, I'm not all I'm going to be, but thank you, Jesus, I'm not what I used to be. And we want it to be that way and stay that way. But as a part of what's going on in our nation, that can have its repercussions in the church of the Lord Jesus, and in particular, that part of the body of Christ saw it called Alamo City. And I, want to, I just want to lean into that some this morning. And this, it's about this knowledge and understanding part that the Lord wants us to have a knowledge of certain things and an understanding of certain things that can be a part of what our role is in the church, but what our role is in our culture, in, in our assignment in the places where where he's given us. There is a word from the Lord that I, I, I want to remind us of this morning, and I hope you'll write this down somewhere, find it in your Bible, and highlight it, underline it, underscore it, mark it, star it, however you do it. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah 6 verse 8. Here's how it goes. What does the Lord require of you, O oh man? But that you would do justly, you, you would do what is right, and you would love mercy, and that you would walk humbly with your God. Three things. Three things. What does the Lord want to see in you? What does the Lord want to know is operating in you? What does the Lord require of you, O oh man? But that you do what's right. Whenever you live, wherever you live, whatever is going on in the place where you live, do what's right in the sight of God. And love mercy. Love mercy. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about what mercy would look like. You love mercy. When you see mercy show up, you run to it. When you see a need for mercy, what is mercy? 
Mercy means somebody getting the good part of what they don't deserve. Kindness is another word for it. Gentleness is another word for it. You love mercy. A part of mercy is forgiveness. A part of mercy can be generosity. A part of of mercy can be choosing not to hold somebody's sin before the face all the time and say, you did this, you did that. But mercy can mean that love covers a multitude of sins. You do what's right, and you love mercy. And then the last one he listed was you walk humbly. You walk humbly. You walk humbly with your God, meaning you come in unto him. If you're going to walk humbly with him, it means that you're going to honor what he has said. You you will respect who he is, but you will honor and do your best to obey what he has said. Now, with that in mind, With that in mind, I want us to look at that first part. What does the Lord require of you, O man, but that you do what's right? You do what's right. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is another one of these epic watershed verses for the people of God. I want you to find it. This is at the dedication of the temple, of Solomon's temple. And he is given these instructions from the Lord. And I hope you'll, this is another one of those verses, those passages to mark in your Bible, to know that it's there. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. In other words, all of those things the Lord is saying I may have to do to get my people's attention. It's these things I have the power to do and I am capable of doing because I love my people and I don't want them living at a lesser plane than I have for them, have destined for them to do. So if, if I'm the one behind sending drought, if I'm the one behind sending disease, if I'm the one behind sending the locusts to devour the land, and then he says, verse 14, And if my people, who were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be attentive, my open and my ears attentive, to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house 
that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. The New Testament reading in on this passage is, is this truth. No longer is there an earthly temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed. But Paul will say, your body, child of God, your physical body, Christian, is the temple in which the spirit of the exalted Christ lives. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord is saying, I've chosen you to set my heart there where you are, and I want to hear the cry of your heart, hear the longings that are working within you. I want to do that, and I'll hear if the sins that have caused my hearing of you to be diminished. But when the sins are gone, when you've confessed the sin, you've humbled yourself, you're back in the right place with me, then I'll hear you, and I'll reward you by being heard by me, by showing that, that I'll deliver you from drought, I'll deliver you from disease, I'll deliver you from whatever it has been in your country that has robbed you of the blessings. So here's the principle, folks. When something is going wrong in the country where we live, where something is not right, instead of us looking at the main players out there, Instead of us blaming it there and there and there, it is, it is, Lord, will you show me my heart? Will you open my heart to what grieves you? Show me first. We don't have responsibility for anybody other than ourselves. It starts there. And I believe that's what the Lord would be saying to the church. Church, you do you do what's right in this sense. Humble yourself before me and ask me to show you where you've grieved me, where the sin would be. All right, now with that in place, I want you to turn back over, keep going left in your Bible to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, Moses on the mountain and the Lord reveals himself to him. And the Lord begins to speak of himself to Moses. Then the Lord passed by. This is 34.6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed. The Lord is speaking of himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, thousands of generations is the reference there, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, there's something that fathers, grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers may have done that grieved the Lord, that violated his heart, and it set in motion something that caused the Lord to restrict his blessings, to withhold the full measure of his goodness because of the sins of ones that lived before the ones who were living now. 
Just leave that place, or you can hold that in your hand. Turn a few books over, one book over, actually, to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26, and I want you to look at verse 40. There's a principle here that that we need to see, we need to know about. Leviticus 26, verse 4. If they, the people, this is an instruction that the Lord is giving to Moses, if they, my people... Look at this, confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility to me. Then verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. In other words, the curse from generations past can be broken by the children who are alive if the children who are alive will will recognize the residue of what the fathers have done way before the children now were ever born. But calling it sin, confessing it as sin, realizing that as children alive today before the Lord, we have become guilty by being influenced by those same attitudes and actions even in generations before, and we're confessing our sins, and we are confessing the sins of our fathers and forefathers in order that we may walk once more in the mercy of the Lord. There is a precedent in the Scripture for the children alive today aware that they may be living under the influence of the sins that were committed before they they were ever born. But the children will identify the sins, and the children will identify what residue there would be working in them of those sins and confess that to the Lord. And on the basis of that, where confession has been made, repentance has been expressed, that the Lord says he remembers the covenant, he remembers the best part of the promises that he had made before, and he remembers the land, and here come the blessings of the Lord again. It is true that the sins of the fathers can be passed down to the generations, but the way that that can be broken is through the confession of the people who are living, the children who are living. Now, here's, here's where I'm going with that. I'm convinced that we are living today under the influences, under the repercussions of the sins of our fathers, our white people fathers, who started, starting in the early 1500s, developed a slave trade between North America and the continent of Africa. And for the next 350 years, give or take, families were stolen. Husbands and wives were split up and children were taken from parents. Put on boats, shipped to the colonies eventually. All of the original colonies making up the United States of America were allowed slaves to be held in those those colonies. When the United States became a small country, the buying and selling of human flesh 
was prominent, was allowed. Now, I realize as I do say these things in San Antonio, folks can be saying, but my background is Hispanic or my background is Anglo, and I, I, I know there may be, that there are some African Americans, but, but what about us? Here's what it is about you. As a white man or woman, as any other ethnicity besides black, there is no other ethnic group in this nation that has been treated the way African Americans have been treated. Whether, whether, whether that's something that I want to embrace, whether that's something I want to agree, it's a fact. Hispanic people were not captured from their homeland and brought to a city, brought to places, and treated like farm implements. And then when a husband and wife or a man and woman would have a child and the children were born and it was a baby girl or a baby boy and grew up weaned, they could be sold like a heifer. They could be sold like a bull calf. And they were for 350 years in this place. So when someone thinks some white person some any other color person besides black can feel like they can say to an African-American man or woman who knows the history of what's happened to the African-American people and that white person says, I understand what you're feeling. You know what that's like? That's like a man who has both arms and both legs would walk up to an Iraqi war veteran who's had both legs blown off and say, I understand what you feel. Or a mother who has given birth to three or four children walks over to a woman who has been praying and crying out for just one baby and for the mother with three or four to say, I know what you feel like. She doesn't. It's not that that sense of wanting to relate and wanting to express some kindness is wrong. It's just that to say we really, really understand each other is not true. That's why I feel like it's so important for the sake of us gaining an understanding of why, and it's, this would not necessarily be true of every single person who's filling the streets in peaceful protests that have deteriorated far too, in far too many places to violent, violence and looting, it's not accurate to say all of them are informed of the background regarding slavery and this kind of hostility toward a race. But I'm just telling you, there are many who are walking those streets. There are many with signs that are saying, we've got a history. We were, our, my forefathers were brought here. They didn't ask to be here. They didn't want to come. They were brought here, and the result has been the consequences of all of that up until this current day. Changes have come. If, if it were 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, and I was saying these kinds of things as a white man in San Antonio, Texas. 
it's very likely that there would have been serious consequences and the preacher might have been run out of town on a rail. But it's the truth. Let me just further, further information. In 1857, there was, a, there was a case that was eventually tried before the United States Supreme Court, and it was, its name was the Dred Scott case. Dred Scott was a slave. He had a wife, and he had two daughters. His owner had taken him from a slave-holding state to a slave free state, a free state territory, and then he was brought back to the slave state. He found a lawyer who would defend him, and the case was that Dred Scott was suing for his freedom and his wife and his two daughters on the basis of Move having been taken to a free state and brought back. And his argument was, I was taken from here to there, and I should have been set free there, but then I was brought back. It made it all the way up. This is 1857. It made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, voted him down. And the result of it was, here's the statement. No Slave or the descendants of slaves have any right to citizenship in the United States of America. That was 1857. Abraham Lincoln ran on the platform that if he was elected president, he would stop the expansion of slavery in the states that were being formed at that time. It would have to remain as it was. When Lincoln was elected in 1860 and, and inaugurated in 1861, seven southern states immediately seceded from the Union. Four were to follow later, and it would be the Confederacy born, and Fort Sumter, and the Civil War began for four years. Over 500,000 men were killed during that four-year period. It, it, it ripped the hearts out of the nation, north and south. And the south, its leadership, Jefferson Davis, in his, in his memoirs, made the statement, slavery was in no wise the cause of the conflict, but only an incident. Slavery was only an incident. At the time of the Civil War, based upon the 1860 census, this that he, only, he called only an incident contained 3,953,762 slaves. It was just... An incident, but nearly four million people enslaved, bought as property, could be sold, put, could be given away. In the South, they became the tractors and the combines, and, and they, were, they, were, they were field implements. That's it. They had to feed them and keep them alive because they needed to grow the cotton. 
I am a Mississippi-born person, born in Vicksburg, Mississippi. When these things started settling in on me as a young man, wait a minute. How, how could it be that it would ever be right in the sight of God? And right as far as the, 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 the conscious conscience of the American experiment. That one human being, no matter the reason, no matter the purpose, would be able to own, own as property, use as a piece of equipment, another human being. How could it be right? How could it, could it under any circumstance be right? But the only way the cotton barons could make money off of the fertile ground in the Mississippi Delta and in Alabama and Georgia and, and up in the Carolinas and so forth was if they had cheap labor, slave labor. It was pure and simple, a financial bowing before the idol of the dollar. It was purely a means to get the rich richer and keep the poor poor. That is the grand old South. I began to sense in my heart in those days that whenever this started dropping 18 inches around the country and people began to realize even in churches what was going on or what had happened, that there literally would come a day when Robert E. Lee's statues on his traveler, the horse, would want to be pulled down. Stonewall Jackson. But why? Why? They were great generals. They were brilliant man, men. And both of them knew the Lord. But the amazing thing about it all, they were blind. They were blind to what was really at the heart of the cause that they were fighting for. The president of, of the... Let me just let me read. This is Jefferson Davis. Slavery was in no wise the cause of the conflict, but only an incident. And the southern, the South was fighting against a, an unlimited despotic power of the federal government and its tremendous and sweeping usurpation of states' rights. That's what, what the South, because it was, it was a financial thing. They had to have the slaves to keep making their money. In the North, some way, somehow, the Dred Scott case came to be increasingly known. And for decades, it had been bothering people. The soul of our nation was bothered by the inequity, the flat-out injustice, the crime of it being possible that one person could buy and own another person. Do you realize that during the Civil War, there is documentation that within the confines of the Alamo from 1861 to 1865, slaves were bought and sold in San Antonio at the Alamo. When that settles in on you, as a person, let's say you're not black, let, let's say you're someone, but, but that was in the background. That your, your predecessors, your, they got your genes, you have their genes. They were treated as property. Would that 
not be something that could rise up within you that would say it was wrong? It was wrong. It was wrong. You put yourself in the shoes of the ones who may be walking the streets, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, Washington today, this weekend, gathered by the, by the thousands. Put yourself not in the, in, in the shoes of someone who's just trying to break into a liquor store and get free booze or somebody who's trying to break into a, a fancy department store and carry off a $500 purse. You put yourself in the shoes of ones who can trace their lineage back to how they got here and the sense of wrong perpetrated. Thank God, Abraham Lincoln was elected. The Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War, meaning that all slaves were free. Wherever they were, they were free. Then it it moved on, it moved on from there. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution outlawed slavery in 1865. The 14th Constitutional Amendment in 1868 gave citizenship, gave citizenship to former slaves and to their descendants and equal protection under the law. The 15th Amendment in 1870 allowed for African-American men, no women were voting in the U.S. at that time, regardless of color. But that amendment gave the African-American men the right to vote. That's in the background. That's in the background. But you fast forward. You fast forward to 1921. Tulsa, Oklahoma. 100 years ago this year. You can look it up in Wikipedia. Shirley and I didn't even know that this was a truth, and she was born in Tulsa. Didn't even know that this was a part of the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, until just a few days ago. You look it up in Wikipedia under the title, The Tulsa Race Massacre. And you'll discover 1921, May 31st, June 1st, when this happened. Mobs of white residents attacked black residents and businesses in what has been come to be known as very likely the single worst racial single worst incident of racial violence in the nation's history. The whites armed themselves. It it was over a 19-year-old black young man who was a shoeshine in downtown that the lawyers knew, others knew about him, had only good things to say. There was a a 16-year-old white girl who ran an elevator across the street some way or another on Memorial Day. The accusation came out that he had assaulted her or tried to assault her. The problem with that, that was she never wanted to press charges ultimately. She, she, She didn't. But it was enough, and the newspaper went out. There's a lynching coming. A year before, there had been a lynching of a white man. They just took a man out of the jail. So the 
So the African-American men, many of them World War I veterans, armed themselves and surrounded, 60 of them maybe, surrounded the, the, the courthouse where the young man was being held. When, when the white guys saw that the black guys were armed, they went home and got their stuff. And they showed up, and for the next couple of days, there were, it was estimated, between 150 and 300 black lives lost. 35 square blocks of downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma was burned to the ground, incinerated. There were private airplanes flying over and dropping bombs and shooting and killing everything that moved in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was a picture that will rip your heart out of about a little four-year-old boy or five-year-old African-American boy carrying the lifeless body of another child as he's going somewhere. That story was buried until only recently. And then a commission was formed, and they've been trying to dig into it. But the amazing thing is newspaper articles and strategic reports have been destroyed. They're not there. And you fast forward through the 30s and through the 40s and through the 50s, through the 60s, 70s, and you come, you come to George Floyd with a white policeman with his knee on the man's neck, and for eight plus minutes, the man lies there dying, and the white policeman, surrounded by another three, are watching and doing nothing except allowing a murder to take place. So what we're saying here is, it can come across as extremely patronizing and come across as extremely arrogant for a white person to say to an African-American who is informed of these things, who knows about these things, for a white person to say, oh, I understand, to which the African-American could turn back and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And it would be the truth. So what then is the church to do? We, we, we didn't live in those days when those decisions were made. We live now, 400 years or so after those things began. What are we to do? What are we to do? We are to do what's right in the sight of God. And I want to suggest to you two things along that line. One is that we ought to be aggressively supportive of equal protection under the law. And it wouldn't matter if it was an African-American or an Anglo or a Hispanic or an Asian or any other class we could have. In this country, dedicated to the Lord, at least by its, many of its founding forefathers and the church that's come since in this place. Lord, we want you to be honored by the way people are treated in this country. Equal protection under the law. I'll give you an example straight out of the life of Jesus. If you would find the Gospel of John in John chapter 8, 
Let me read this story, or at least a part of it, this morning. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said, said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did, did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. He knew she was guilty. He knew they were not impartially applying the law. Because the law of Moses in that sense says very clearly, the man and the woman should be brought and should be dealt with in that way. They were picking and choosing the parts of the law that worked for their agenda. What did Jesus do? He didn't act in shame of the woman. He moved toward the woman. He entered into her part of her world. He knew she was guilty. He knew she had been caught. But he also knew that the law was being improperly applied to her, only partially. And so he spoke into her heart as he took her side. You say, that just seems so, how could that be that the, the, the most holy man who ever lived would take the side of the guilty person? That's your Jesus. Thank God that's our Jesus. Didn't he come and take our side? in our places of entrapment, in our places of believing lies about ourselves and about God and about people, didn't he draw near to us and let us know compassion instead of, of, of the judicial reckoning of a harsh court? Neither do I condemn you. You go your way and sin no more. Equal protection under the law. It is a premise. It is a truth. Where there are bad policemen, where there are sickened judging judge systems, judicial systems around the nation, that needs to be smoked out 
It needs to be identified. It needs to be dealt with and something that's right and true and honest put in its place. Now, as I say that, it's a given. Not all policemen, not all an authority are criminals. We have some godly men in this church, in this fellowship, and connected with us. Border patrol, game wardens, sheriff's deputies, active duty SAPD officers, good men, strong men. They wouldn't say they're perfect, but I would want them on my side if I needed somebody to stand to my defense. It doesn't matter to them what cause. So to, to blanketly say, to blanketly say, all in authority are completely wrong, that's not what this is about. It is about where there is stuff that needs to be corrected. God, smoke it out. What's done in secret, let it be shattered from the rooftop so it can be fixed. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't back away from that, folks, church. When there are legitimate cries for justice to be served and for correction to be in place, instead of us going, well, I wonder what their secret agenda is, I wonder what's going on, we ought to just say, Lord, bring the truth, bring the truth, bring the truth, and fix it, Lord, fix it. Instead of feeling like we are the ones who are supposed to be judge and jury on a particular situation. I can tell you that African-American pastors are deeply troubled. They are in the trenches with this because they see that there are many peaceful projects. They, they, they recognize the history. They see it just seems like it's one more act, of, well, one more expression of, 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 of blacks being, being unduly and wrongly persecuted just for the color of their, kin, of their skin. They, they see that. They know that. That's the history. But they also realize that when it turns from that kind of protest, that kind of registry of what was wrong into breaking down, breaking out windows and burning up cars and trying to shoot and kill people, it's crossed a line. And I have been, last night I was on the phone with a lead African-American pastor in our city, a dear brother of mine, a friend of mine, and he was saying, we lose the right to say anything if in the expression of our concern, there is not an expression that, that, that speaks of, of decency and restraint and, and what is truth. We lose the right to have a voice if we step away from following the Lord in his instructions, his commands, and his direction. To love our enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use us. That, that's real-time stuff that's going on in African-American churches. And, and, and there will be many hundreds, if not thousands, who are a part of the protests who know Jesus, who, who, are, who are praying, God, right the wrong here. Help me to be a part of the solution. And it will be a fraction. I'm convinced it is a fraction of ones who have other agendas and other plans to try to destroy the nation. It has nothing to do necessarily with black rights and, and restoration of justice. That, that, that is something I just think we've got to know. Jesus was, in, was, was favorable to, Jesus was involved in equal justice under the law. Not a favored treatment, but equal. Here's the second thing, and I love this part about Jesus. Equal opportunity. Equal opportunity. Not one leg up over somebody else, but equal opportunity. Well, have you ever thought about studying through Jesus' hires, 
If, if you want to call the disciples his team, his work group, who'd Jesus hire to be on his team? Who did Jesus hire to represent his cause? This, this is a blowaway, but it is so freeing and it is so good, it's so liberating, and it helps us to understand where we need to be found in our culture today. There ought to be equal opportunity for folks to be able to make it, to be able to build a business, to get an education, whatever. When you go to, when you go to uh, the Gospel of, of Luke, there are two places that are just fascinating to me. One of them, there are many in Luke, but, but in this particular instance, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi or Matthew sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. He was going to hire him on the spot. An unrepentant, crooked, lying, thought of as a traitor by his contemporaries, tax gatherer, tax collector, the lowest of the low on the social scale morally in this day. Follow me. He left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him, for Jesus, in his house. Jesus didn't say, I'll meet you in the synagogue. Pay your tithes. Get everything fessed up before you can follow me. He, Jesus went to his house. What do you reckon Levi had in his house? And then he goes on to say, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees, the super saints, the spiritual religious police, and their, and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Sinners to a better way. Sinners to a way out. Sinner to a, sinners to a future and hope. Jesus hired as one of the 12 a tax collector, unrepentant, hadn't been baptized yet, hadn't confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, but Jesus saw something in him, saw something about him, and Jesus wanted him and invited him to follow him. Oh, my goodness. Equal opportunity. Equal opportunity. Equal opportunity. Are, are you hearing that? That it wasn't that he went to the, to the, to, to the local theological school, give me your top ten graduates. He finds a tax gatherer, known as a cheat, a liar, a steal, a stealing, a thief. Follow me. Oh, goodness, folks. Isn't that what he's done with us? He doesn't say, clean yourself up, get everything fixed, everything right, and then maybe I'll talk to you. He came to us in the places where we were, made his loving presence known. 
And we began to see light instead of darkness. We began to feel freedom instead of chains. The closer we got to him and the more we spent time with him. What does the Lord require of you? You do what's right. You you be found in support of equal protection under the law, equal opportunity. You, You be found in that place, supporting that, loving that, encouraging that. But then found, be found loving mercy. Loving mercy. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. He never delegated to you or me or any human his vengeance. He never gives his glory away. Those two things. He, repra- he, he, he retains the, the sole proprietorship over his glory and vengeance. And in the process of that, folks, you and I have the opportunity to do what's right, to love mercy, and if we fall off in a ditch in being too merciful, it's the better place to be than to fall off in the other self-righteous judgment. You better do it. You better fix it. It's God's business to change It's the Lord's business to make whole. It's the Lord's ability to give eyes to see that couldn't couldn't see things before. That's his property. It is not our property to mete out judgment, vengeance. It's mercy. We're called to mercy. And then the last one, I'll finish with this. Walk humbly with your God. Meaning honor what he says. There is a great danger, and I think I'm the most concerned about this for the church. And it is this. Jesus said after he taught us how to pray, he comes back in Matthew 5 and he repeats one of the themes in the prayer. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us, trespass against us. And then he comes back. And he picks up on that again. And he says, if you want the Father to forgive you, then you must live and walk in the place of forgiving others. Because if you hold on to an offense, if you hold on to something that you refuse to let go of in offense towards someone else, then the Father will not forgive you. You you find that repeated in strategic places in the New Testament. And I would say this too as we close. There was one remaining sin. There was one remaining temptation that Satan had to throw at Jesus. That if Jesus had taken the bait, could have completely thwarted and forfeited his mission as the lamb without spot and blemish on the cross dying for our sins. Jesus had to die in order for him to fulfill his mission with pure blood. No sin. No sin. And Luke records, and it's in the imperfect tense of the verb, meaning he was saying this and saying this 
and saying this and saying this as they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You could look at that from the human, physical, natural sense. Well, they ab- what do you mean, Jesus? They absolutely knew what they were doing. They were taking spikes and driving them with hammers through your wrists and through your feet. They knew what they were doing, but from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of God, Jesus, they don't understand the magnitude of what they're doing. Father, forgive them. The the one remaining sin that Jesus could have committed that could have kept him from being our perfect Savior would have been the sin of refusing to forgive. It would have shut him down from accomplishing the goal. Folks, that is what an unforgiving heart, holding on to, clutching, clinging to offenses, can do for us. It can cause us to become, because of our offense, so small, so narrow-minded, so close, that we can't look up and see the rest of what the Lord wants to take us to and do through us. Because we are gripping, holding on to, refusing to let go of that which we have been so offended by. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil a place in your heart. It's a a contradictory command. Be angry. Seems contradictory. Be angry. There's things, things you have permission to be angry about. When there is injustice, when there is wrong, when 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 there have been lies, when it's not a sin to be angry. Here's where the sin comes in. When you hang on to that anger. And it cooks inside you. Even if it is a righteous cause, even if it's something that needs to be fixed, even if it's something that was a great injustice to you, to allow that to stay inside you and and refuse, refuse to let it go, to forgive, then what Paul says you're doing is that you are giving a place for the devil in your life. Satan can't come, knock down walls inside a believer's heart, pierce the protection, the armor of God, but a Christian can give the enemy turf. The word for place is the word topos, the word for topography or maps or location. By allowing resentment Anger to cook, to stay in in your heart gives a place in your heart that the devil can come and occupy. And as he moves in, it's, it's a foothold, then it becomes a stronghold, but there can be a part of your life and other people can notice it and you may just be caught up in it and you're not fully aware, but, but it, 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 it develops a life of its own. You become something that you are not in any other setting than when that place of anger and resentment 
takes over. And it's not just a benign place. It's not just something of the flesh. Paul says literally a force of darkness, a personality of darkness can move in and begin to operate in that place in your heart. So what do we do? We cry out, Lord, I can't let go of this on my own. The theme that we've been on for all these months now, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Only by your spirit can this anger, the fire of this anger be put out. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden what the person did to you or said to you is okay. It's no big deal. I'm fine with it. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that there has come to be a sense in your heart that you have been able to release that one and what happened to you back to the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That, uh, Lord, help me to be able to give this to you, to cast my care upon you because you care for me. I'm just telling you, folks, if, if, if that was something that you could do without the Spirit's help, then we'd have dealt with some of this stuff a long time ago. But some, for some reason, we get to thinking that, 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 that I can't get rid of this anger or in some ways I'm justified to have this anger and so we never begin to cry out, Lord, rid me of this anger. Deliver me from the shackles of this poison inside me. Anger is a poison. Unforgiveness is a poison to the Spirit. And I hear my brother's in the African-American churches preaching this with the eloquence that God's given them and the plea that's within them, though there are reasons that we justifiably are offended, justifiably have reason to protest, it can't become what owns us. It has to become something that the Lord will use for good, and it is something that we do not allow to fester in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. This last statement, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. What the enemy meant for evil, the Lord used for good, Joseph to his brothers. That is the truth of the slavery issue in our country, the history of it in our nation. I'm so sad it was so wrong what was done by our forefathers to your forefathers and mothers. But Romans 8, 28 is true. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that I have a brother named Randall Draper and a brother named Charles Flowers and a, and a brother, the, 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 the brothers I could go on naming. I love to hear them preach. I love to hear Randall just get to singing and then just get to preaching and I'm sitting there on the front row just fighting jealousy back. Oh, how much better my preaching would be if I just had a little melody, if I just had a little rhythm in these bones. So glad you're here. God has caused all things. But what would we do without gospel songs 
in our legacy of the church, in our history of the church? Where would we be? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he cares for me. Where would we be apart from the riches of God's grace and goodness that he has brought to us, all of the church in America, because of the African Americans who got here in sad, cruel, sinful ways. And God didn't cause that. But God is causing this, the bad, the wrong, to work together for good in this day. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your heart. I thank you that we, we answer to no one but you. And where your word is true and it conflicts what we're comfortable with, it conflicts the stream of, of society and the course of culture, we're going to stick with and stand on what your word says is true and the example of our Savior. And we'll be praying that the culture will catch up but that we're not expecting you to change, to meet the opinions and the whims of the culture. May we as your people understand the times and know what we need to do. May we find in you and by the flow of your spirit into our hearts the strength and the grace to live every day doing what's right, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Could I ask those of you in the room to stand with me, please, as we get ready to go from this place? The numbers are increasing in the house, and it's, it's good to see you. It's, it's a blessing to see you. We're giving you the permission as if we needed to give Texans permission for anything, but we're giving you permission to wear your mask or not wear your mask. If you're more comfortable, you do what you feel comfortable with, and we'll leave it in your hands. I want to say again thank you to the many of you out there as well as in this room who continue to support with your prayers and with your giving the ministry of Alamo City so that we can keep going out to the places where folks are hearing this, the, the word, the, the worship from here all over the world. Bless you for doing that. We're still feeding the hungry and clothing the ones who need clothes and trying to help folks who need, who need help in Jesus' name. We're able to do that because of your generosity and your help. You know, I'm just, I, I, so, I so want to do it. I'm having to fight it off. I so want to say, would everybody just step across the aisle and join hands and we're going to sing a closing song. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that yet. We'll save that for another day. A great reunion Sunday that may be coming before we, we realize it. Would you just, if you can't hug their neck, I mean, and I'm not saying do, don't, don't break any protocol, but would you just speak a word of blessing, encouragement? Good to see you. You look great above and below your mask. It's just great to see you here. Whatever you want to say to your brothers and sisters in this house and those of you who have been a part with, of, with us today, streaming. Thank you. Bless you. Take this to heart. Let, let's be the people of God in our day in this generation. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you for coming.